This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Dr. Louise Moody, it is such a pleasure to finally see you in person. <laughs> okay, so thank you. Yeah, um, so I'm just here to talk a little bit about how Daniel says about um, philosophy of perception and specifically um, illusions and whether what um, we say about them should motivate a particular view of um, what it is to perceive the world and the type of things we're aware of um, more generally. So, let's go. So, I, as people know, I know, um, may know, I know Louise uh, from online, uh, 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 the online world, and um, um, she is a, a philosopher, um, uh, specializes in philosophy of perception and where it crosses over to philosophy of mind. This is one of the areas I actually was hired to teach in, and I thought, why not have a conversation about this uh, and about Louise's own views which strike me as interesting um, and uh, worth exploring. Um, Louise, I'm going to, maybe I'll give my inadequate uh, account, the way I teach my undergraduates of the illusion and hallucination and other style arguments and what some of the typical implications are that philosophers will make. And then I'd like you to talk and maybe provide a more sophisticated treatment. Okay. Um, so, the way I teach this starts with Descartes, right? Because Descartes relatively easy for undergraduates to read, especially the meditations. And um, it's a pretty clear articulation of some of the problems. And so Descartes evokes examples where um, we perceive something, but it turns out that the thing is other than the way it seems to us, right? So, you know, a silly example, perhaps, you know, you're looking at a stick that's immersed in a glass that's half full with water and it looks bent and you say, well, there's a bent stick. Well, it turns out there wasn't a bent stick. It's a straight stick. Um, only It only appears bent. Right. Um, uh, Descartes gives examples like with a malicious demon who's causing you to misperceive and misthink everything. Um, uh, and, and what a lot of philosophers, especially in that period, the 17th and 18th century concluded from this, um, is that we don't perceive the world directly, right? That we perceive a percept that itself is only a reflection of an object, right? Um, um, hallucinations are also invoked to draw, come to this general conclusion, right? If I can completely, uh, if I can perceive an, a pink elephant when there isn't one, then that must mean that when I see actual elephants, what I'm seeing is a mental picture of an elephant that is caused by the elephant. And this causes a whole, this has led to a view called indirect realism, which is the view that we directly perceive ideas and only indirectly perceive the world that creates skepticism. And this in a way created pretty much the primary narrative arc of a good part of philosophy from the 17th century into the 20th. Okay. That's the lazy, lazy, simplistic version. Now, Louise, I'd like you to provide maybe a better version of what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I think I see the um, skeptical conclusion where you get going with you arguments and you know in a later day the matrix and so forth i think i see that has um an add-on to the um 
argument from illusion and the argument from hallucination. Because logopathy, um, and it's not even a necessary add-on. So you've got the argument from illusion, which goes, sometimes we're misled, and you gave the examples, you know, the straight stick, and then Descartes described he was walking up to what he thought was a round town. It turned out to be square, and, you know, he gives these examples. Now, those are things in the world. So far, we haven't got to um, the whole, well, everything might be, you know, a grand illusion. Um, all he's saying at that point is we are misperceiving actual things out there. These things exist. They're not, me they're not mental constructs. Um, but I do think if you, if you are motivated by the view that these kinds of examples kind of wheel in things, you know, fantastic objects to me, like sense data or this mental... Um, just call it a mental item for now because it doesn't matter what's doing the work only that there's some mental um object that's mediating um our access to the world if you do take that you might think well how you get the epistemological question of how can you know that there's a world behind the veil but that's like um an added kind of step it doesn't necessarily follow you might still take the view that the mental item is representing things accurately um, and, you know, we don't have to be forced into some kind of idealist um, position just because, there's a men just because there's a mental item representing how things are. So do you think there's a logical gap between... I, I believe so, because I, th I think, <laughs> I mean, the whole sceptical um, argument gets going is when you just sit there and reflect in the armchair, doesn't it? And you can't say, well... You know, how do we know that we're not some victims of, you know, some um, technologically sophisticated aliens, you know, um, making everything um, as it is and passed down and we're all in the matrix and so forth? But, um, that, that doesn't, that, um, that's separate from the whole um, sense data thing. I see it as an extra an extra thing that gets right. going through introspection so let me ask you let me let, let me ask you something to see that if i've gotten you correctly um it's one thing let me ask you it this way look the 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 indirect realism by itself is not an anti-realism right in other words the the move from well the fact that I can have a perceptual experience when either the thing causing it doesn't exist or is other than it seems, right? I mean, yeah, it might, it, it certainly might be taking in motivation for the view, but I think the um, indirect realism, that's a metaphysical question, isn't it? About the kind of thing we perceive, the nature, the um, fundamental nature of what it is we're acquainted with. Well, yeah. that seems, and then you get the epistemological question of what what do we know beyond this you know mental item and and that you know you you might take the view that you can still have a veridical perception of the world it's just mediated by this you know um the mental the mental item so i don't really see um well because if that were the case you know many many representationalists would be in serious trouble and it's a, it's a common view um but, but most of them, you know, I, I, well, I hope so, they all stop at saying, you know, we're, we're brains in a vat and so forth, because that's an epistemological um, move. Yeah, I mean, I, I, certainly, yeah, I, mean I certainly think you can, um, 
take up take your um the examples you gave you know the bench date and the illusions and hallucinations and so forth as a motivation but it's not i i, I don't think there's any um logical um relationship between the two between the two i guess um, what i was wondering is is the question of whether the indirect realism follows from these these reflections upon illusion and hallucination a separate matter from whether the anti-realism that sort of the global skepticism that then entails the anti-realism follows from it in other words could it be the case that yeah the indirect realism is indicated but the global skepticism isn't or do you think that it's there's a fundamental mistake that blocks both inferences from these reflections on illusion and hallucination i guess that's what i was getting at no i mean i think i think it would be very hard to see what that fundamental um mistake might be because obviously once once you're once you're wheeling in fantastic men, fantastically mental items you might then motivate you to be thinking well everything you know you're aware of is a mental item and you're and you're down the idealist well of how can we know you know there's the external world out there I mean, personally, I think it. I, th I think it goes too far. But um, like I said, like I say, it's certainly a motivation, um, and I don't think there's a necessary block between the argument from illusion and the whole, you know, move to global skepticism. And I, I guess I, I guess that's partly one reason why I think. Well, we need to get we need to stop this argument at an early age before philosophers behave like philosophers and start wheeling in, you know, these fantastic um, conclusions. I, li I like that idea that that uh, philosophers' tendencies towards um, um, towards these sorts of positions as a result of poor childhood development. <laughs> I, I, I like that idea very much. <laughs> I, I um, don't know. Maybe, maybe you know it's a lack of imagination, but you know we we're all introduced, you know, to the Putnam brain in a vat thing, you know, in underground. And I just sit there and think they've all lost their minds. But <laughs> articulating why that's the case is really were you know no no i agree with it's that it's really rewarding yeah yeah um here i have a candidate for a fundamental earlier mistake that leads to all of them and i'm wondering if what you think of this um um and maybe this would block any inference that you would try to make it does seem to me that there is an assumption that you could say is just there's no reason to assume it and that is that it follows from the fact that one's experience is at odds with reality that one therefore is not directly perceiving reality, right? It doesn't follow from the fact that my experience can be as odds with the things that they are, that what I'm directly aware of is the experience and not the thing. Right. Um, and there, I guess it's the hallucinations that tempt people more in that direction because there's an experience, not that mismatches an object, but where there's no there's object, there right, right. So what, what do you think about that? Do you think that that could be a candidate for an, a, an earlier stage mistake? This conflate, this notion that it follows from the fact that experience is at odds with reality, that one therefore is, is directly perceiving experience. <laughs> Certainly. And I, I think that kind of reflects the dualist, the dualism from which, you know, this whole thing has, has sprang from. Because you know, if you if you think the mind can conjure conjure up this whole thing and it can do it in in the brain in a vat separately, you know, 
Um, that I, I think that I think that has a charge in gender dualism that um, that, that you've um, spoken about. And it's all, it's all so much more serious and much more fatal, isn't it? Because you think, well, if you're hallucinating one thing, I mean, obviously, global, we, we can't know if, if we're having a global, well, maybe there's like, maybe, you know, we do know. Um, but, but suppose you can't know you're having a global hallucination, but you can know that you're having a partial hallucination, right? Because, you know, some very occasionally rational people do hallucinate things. Um, and they know they're hallucinating, like Charles Bonnet syndrome, you know, the um, thing where some people with uh, macular degeneration, they tend to hallucinate like um, really like small things, like they, they misperceive the size of things. So everything seems kind of Lilliputian. Um, and they know they're having this hallucination. Um, but if you, and, then you, and then you might say, well, if you can hallucinate one bit of reality, you can probably hallucinate all, you know, everything and and that and that's how it and that's how it gets going so I, I think that's a much more serious problem and with an illusion you're you know you're only dealing one, with one thing you're dealing with a stick aren't you in in, in the water or you're dealing with the Molalaya lines or you know the necker cube thing that looks to flip back and forth you're dealing with very specific things so hallucination is much more um worrisome yeah 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 all right um um I did want to talk about this somewhat at a quote unquote introductory level, just because the audience is not necessarily a specialist audience, but I do want to get also into, since this is what you've done your research in, and, and I believe wrote your dissertation. And if I'm correct, if I'm remembering correctly, um, I would like to hear a more sophisticated take on this. And so um, first of all, you're not really inclined to think that illusion and hallucination are all that usefully assimilated. I mean, I've just assimilated all of these things together as is very commonly done in introductory level treatments, but you, I'm, I'm under the impression are not inclined to think that that kind of just lumping them all together and saying, well, these, these. I think it, I think it's extremely lazy and maybe that's acceptable in the first year of an undergraduate degree, but it's not acceptable once you are going to make an actual, you know, argument about it because, you know, for one thing, if I was to, you know, bring an illusion up on, on the screen now, everyone could see it. But if I'm telling you there's, um, oh, the hallucination has of, you know, an elephant strolling to the room. No, no one can see that. So illusions by their nature, they are, you know, they're, ah, into, they're that's into interesting. subjective, yeah. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. You know, um, you can we can all see off. the illusion. <laughs> yeah, we can all see the illusion. You yeah. can't see somebody else's hallucination. You're right. Absolutely. Right, yeah. Um, <laughs> And Austin makes this point, you know, and in going in sense of sensibilia, and it like he said, well, you know, what on earth is the problem? We can all see an illusion, or what? What the kind of things that can be photographed? Um, they're predictable. You can replicate the conditions. If I draw two lines with the end hatches on and say, do they look unequal? Nearly everybody is going to say yes, right? The only people that don't say yes are people who um, grow up in environments where there's um, few like 3D buildings, so they haven't developed that depth kind really? of section. Really? Really? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, if you show like the Mulalaya lines to um, someone who grew up in like the Saharan Plains, right, um, where the buildings are typically, you know, small, you're not, you're not going to be presented with a skyscraper, for example. 
Um, but here in the Western world, we're navigating cities and um, apartment buildings and so forth. And I think it's something, I mean, I don't have, I can't remember, it's appalling, but it's something like about, like about um, 60 to 70% of them are just not as, they are susceptible, but not as much to the degree we are. We will see the lines and we will go, right, there, there are two unequal lines until we, until we come to know better. But they will say, Mm, not quite so sure about that. And some and some are not susceptible at all. Um, and there's a number of competing explanations for that, but it's not really the causal story we're interested in. Um, yeah. So, okay, it never even occurred to me this difference between illusion and hallucination. <laughs> I mean, other than you're right that Austin brings it up, although his main critique doesn't is not based come from that vector but i think comes from somewhere else but it doesn't matter this it's a fascinating distinction what do you think philosophically follows from that in other words is that simply a reason that we should not lump these all together for these phenomena and try to draw philosophical conclusions for them as a general matter or do you think something specifically philosophically follows from the fact that that illusions are mutual are, are confirmable and mutually perceivable and hallucinations are not it's interesting because um, my own my own view is that I think we can give hallucinations a naive realist um, treatment, and um, we we'll get we we'll get scripts spelling out that view. You know, very soon we've just been talking about directly perceiving the world, um, and I think we can. But I think whatever story we, I used to think that we should tell um, the same basic story of all these, you know, misleading cases, and it would be explanatory, very simple. Philosophy just philosophy does not work that way. Um, but I still think we can give a naive realist treatment, and that's the um, key thing for me, because if you can do that, you, you know. And there's very little phenomena left to explain. You know, the arguments, the arguments don't really have the force that they do. Um, I do think that the different features of the um, two phenomena, hallucinations and illusions. Um, I personally don't think they necessarily motivate um, wildly different accounts in the sense that one must be naive realist and one must be um, non-naive realist and we don't have to start wheeling out mental objects in the case of hallucination too. Um, but within that broad naive realist treatment, we should probably be saying slightly different things of the two phenomena. Okay, so just for the audience's sake, um... <clears throat> Why don't you why don't you why don't you tell me tell us what you how you understand naive realism? Oh, okay. Um if we go back, I think the view really kind of gets um gets spelled out um 17th, 18th century, and Hume goes on about how there's this whole class of vulgar people who think they directly Wait, the vulgar people, what's it? Yeah, we are the vulgar people who can who confound perceptions and objects and, and we're too stupid to know any better, you know. Um, the common sense, ordinary, intuitive view of the world. 
uh, we see things like trees and tables and, you know, coffee cups and so forth. But it's a little bit more sophisticated than just saying, right, there's a world out there and you're directly it's it's a very kind of specific metaphysical claim about um, what determines what your experience is subjectively like. So, like philosophers like to use the word like phenomenal character, right? as you know, and they say what it's like to experience red is different from what it's like to experience green. Um, what it's like to what it's like to look at. Um, on one night is different from looking at another, you know, type of object and so forth. Um, and they wheel out words like your feels and say it's just like something, an indefinable, ineffable something. It has this special quality. Um, and it's very hard to articulate what that quality is supposed to be. It might not be articulable at all, linguistically articulable, but you know that you're having a different type of experience. So the the type of experience that you have when you're looking at something red, for example, is, um, I would say, let's use the phrase like relationally determined. So it's determined by the fact that you stand in a relation to the object itself, this kind of basic, direct, unique, acquaintance relation and, that, and that's another thing they don't really spell out either right because Russell starts going on about this mystic union between the perceiver and the, and the object um so what it's saying so what it's saying is the properties of the object with which you are directly acquainted so the property of being read for example um determines the phenomenal character of your experience. It determines what it's like to have that particular experience rather than any other kind of experience that you're currently having. So it's kind of a relational yeah. about, about phenomenal character. So in a sense, it does, it take, naive realism, at least one thing it does do is it rejects a certain metaphysics, right? It rejects the idea, mm-hmm. it rejects the primary secondary quality distinction. It rejects mm-hmm. the idea that some of the properties of objects are in our heads and some of the properties of objects, the so-called secondary qualities are properties out in the world. Yeah. Right. I'm, and so, so it rejects that. Um, it doesn't necessarily take, a, I mean, it leaves to science to sort of determine out the details of the nature of phenomenological experience. It simply re- rejects this kind of dualistic, uh, this property dualism, right? Um, 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 that is, un, you know, the, that property dualism creates all the problems that then you get in Kant, <laughs> right? That then Kant is trying to fit, well, you know, because Barclay basically says, look, you know, if the secondary properties are in the mind, why shouldn't the primary properties be in the mind also? To which Kant's like, good question, right? You know, why shouldn't they be? Um, um, and um, um, leads us all down into all sorts of places. And so I really, I, I, I like that, that, that that characterization of naive realism could you maybe now since you raise naive realism as the way you prefer to respond to hallucination etc could you maybe give <laughs> us a, a talk through how that works well i think if we think about how the argument runs and we get a grip on its structure and then we can say, well, just very basic and then we can say what bit the naive realist um typically objects to i mean you can object to 
really every step of it, but there's very specific step because, you know, the whole argument really gets going. It goes like this. So you have these um, misleading experiences. Let's just, you know, stick with one. You gave the example of the straight stick that, you know, we said to look in some sense then. Um, the argument goes, well, in some sense, that's what they call, you know, reflectively um, indiscriminable from an experience um, of looking at a, a bent stick, you know, in some sense that if you're just um, confining yourself to introspection, that you couldn't tell the two experiences part. You don't know which is the non-misleading and which is a misleading case. So, so you know that. That's how the argument gets going. And if you accept that, you um, you might say something like, well, if the non-misleading case of the um, stick um, of of a if you're not misleading case of looking at a bench stick is somehow reflectively indiscriminable from the experience of you know the parts of merge straight stick in water, then you're going to think well what explains that inability to discriminate between them? Well, it's because they share what's called you know um, a common nature, um, a common phenomenal character. You might say the experiences are of the same fundamental phenomenal. Time that's doing this explanatory work where you can't tell them apart. Right. Um, but because we know that, like, well, it is argued that um, the phenomenal characters of the misleading cases aren't um, naive realists, you're going to have to conclude that um, the phenomenal characters of the then misleading counterparts are also non naive realists if you accept that they share this, you know, basic, basic kind. Um, so the naive realist is going to come in and say, well, well, you know, hold on a minute. And where that where they typically block the argument is they say, well, of course, um, two experiences can be, you know, introspectively indistinguishable. Um, but that's no guide to their kind of metaphysical makeup. Of course, they can be different, different kinds of things. And, uh, you know, and we go back to Austin. He's really he's really, you know, the one that's clearest on all of this that that I think it says well you know you take you take a bar of soap that's yellow and that that's shaped like a duck and you take like a d and you take and you take um you know a rubber duck they're two different kinds of objects they're made out of fundamental different kinds of things but you might you might not be able to tell them apart right so so what on earth is the problem supposed to be so typically the naive realist um makes the um what's called the disjunctivist move and, you know, philosophers start wheeling in these big words, but all we mean is that we're, we're either having um, a good kind of experience, a non-misleading experience, or we're having, you know, the bad case in which, you know, there are illusions and hallucinations. And those cases can be indiscriminable, and they're just made out of different kinds of stuff. That's all. And we don't have to... Um, start positing this idea of a shared common phenomenal kind that explains it because if you're naive realist you might think well naturally of course you have to make that move because if what your experience is like is determined by the fact that you stand in a particular kind of relation to um and you know say say um the stick and that stick is actually not present in hallucination well something else must be determining what your experience is like so of course you might think, you know, that's a natural um, commitment. So, so that's typically the move they make, um, and I, I do think, I do think that's right. I do think, insofar as bad cases, insofar as we have to admit them, I think, you know, we have to tell a different story. 
But I also think we might want to dial that further back a bit and say, well, let's think about what illusions and hallucinations are and think about whether we can actually give more of them naive realist treatment than is suspected. So, for example, if we could explain the straight sticking um, things that looks bent or more lines, you know, in naive realist terms, you, you, you've put a, quite a serious dent before they, um, they start wheeling in talk of, you know, shared phenomenal character. There's just less things to explain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wonder, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, look, I mean, one way to explain what's going on in illusion is through some notion of mismatch between two objects, right? Yeah. The thing in it, the thing in itself, and then the, the, the idea of it or the mental picture of it. But the, the, the point in a sense, I guess, is that this is completely unnecessary. In other words, that, in a sense, the naive realist is, is, is a simpler explanation of exactly the same thing, right? It's like, I don't have to have two objects that mismatch each other. All I have to say is that I have a distorted impression of a thing, right? And the hallucinations are entirely different. That's just your brain making pictures, right? Now, there still is the issue, though, right, that on the hallucination view, there is such a thing as pictures, right? Yeah, right? yeah. Um, and that I may mean, have its own separate problems that lie in Wittgenstein, right? How can there be purely mental pictures given problems to do with privacy and rules and all that sort of thing? Right. Absolutely. But that's a separate problem from the one where these classic problem that we're talking about. So it just sounds to me like what you're saying is, look, the naive realist explanation is simply, it's just simpler, right? And it explains exactly the same thing. And requires only one object. It requires only one object. Right. It's a what? It's a one. It's a monastic theory of experience rather than you know making it. Um, and we're not wheeling in things like logically private objects that have no you know apparent spatial extent. Where are these objects? You know, we're not we're not dealing with something very intuitively bizarre, or, yeah. or, or so it seems to me. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I, I think I think if we do that, we are on our way to a solution. But spelling out the naive realist um, treatment of illusions is, you know, the whole kind of tricky part. And you know, even within illusions, I think it's probably worth making a distinction between the kinds of things philosophers claim are illusions and seeing whether we can give a naive realist treatment of them. Because now, um. Philosophers, you know, they tend to um, snap standards to make a, a distinction. You've got your um, optical illusion, which is like, um, say, when, say when your perceptual equipment, typically your visual um, equipment is misled or tricked in some way, like, as in, you know, the lines that look unequal, the, um, the duck rabbit that, you know, looks to flip back and forth. I've never seen this, and it's a weird one to me because I stare at it and it just doesn't happen, right? But, there's the flip with the um, yeah. duck rabbit. Um, and um, there's the cases where um, you talk about, you know, the, the straight stick. That's what's typically called a physical illusion, where the world, um, it, it, they care purely as a result of what's going on in the world rather than, you know, your, your um, sexual um, equipment being tricked or misled in some way. It's purely kind of 
subject, um, they have some kind of subject independent explanation. Um, and then you've got your really kind of weird cases, which might actually be closer to hallucination than we like to admit. And they call them um, cognitive illusions. So these are the kind of cases um, where you see something and you think it's something else, right? Um, you, mm. you have what's, um, say, some kind of anomalous cognitive effect happens. So, you know, if you've ever had the experience like I have, like waking up in the night and you see a shadow, like, and you say, oh, God, what's in the room? It just turns out your clothes on the chair or something like that. So you have that brief moment of mistaking something has, um, an object has an effect, you know, kind of yeah. thing. And those, those are the problematic cases because they're like unpredictable. Um, and they're kind of not um, the kind of things that can be photographed. Um, you know, I might, just, I might just see clothes on a chair. Someone might see um, um, like a dog, for example, you know. So, so well, um, and that doesn't happen when we're looking at Muller Lyre lines or um, straight sticks. So even within illusions, we kind of have to be careful of what we're trying to explain and make that distinction. Yeah, yeah. There's something else that you said that reminds me very much of Austin is, you know, your whole point that, look, you know, there's one important difference, but one huge important difference between a hallucination and an illusion is that they don't have, they have a very different kind of object, right? And um, Austin, at least if this is how I read Sense and Sensibilia, I mean, one of the central aspects of this critique is that there's no such thing as a material object, right? I mean, in other words, that philosophers have, you know, like to clump together all these objects of perception under material object, but he's like, you know, you know, there's cups and then there are shadows and then there are and, 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 and that they can't all just be sort of assimilated together. They don't they guess, don't define. You don't even know what a perception is by the end of it. So, you know. Right. Right. So, I mean, if the idea is that we have perceptions of material objects, part of what I think Austin is objecting to. And I think um, um, it's important to recognize is that there's such an artificiality and distance between the philosophical discourse and what we normally mean by these words. And yet the philosophical discourse is depending upon our ordinary understandings of these words. So you get these terribly confused. I actually think this is true of a lot of philosophy, even beyond uh, perceptual uh, stuff. I think this is a mistake this philosophy constantly makes that employs ordinary language, but in ways that are really at odds with the way that that ordinary language is ordinarily understood. And so you get a lot of very odd positions and odd sounding positions. Um, how important do you think the, the, the question of what the object of perception is or whether there is a single kind of object of perception? Is, do you think it's even useful to talk about all the different objects of perception under a single umbrella? rests upon um, the mistake um, that we are talking as if there is one kind of object um, of certain qualities we can perceive. So if we're looking now um, on, on your um, background behind you, right, okay, and you look at my background, here's an example. Um, I, I can reach out like a right? I can knock. It's the kind of thing you can touch. And we think of, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what happens in your fit. I'm picking and Richie Blackmore's nose, right? I'm <laughs> 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 um, and we do, and I think these arguments get going because we assume the type of objects, the object of perception is more like this than 
like your background, you know, the mm. thing that you've just put your finger through. Now, I would say to me that your background is um, a real um, worldly material existing yeah. object, right? That's that's my view. And um, Mike Martin introduces these um, objects called, um, he calls it pure visibilia, right? Purely visible objects. There might be, I presume there would be such things, purely haptic objects, for example. There would probably be objects corresponding to each sense modality that can only be perceived in that, you know, sense modality. Um, so I would say that that background behind you is, you know, purely a light phenomenon. Um, we don't see, like, when we look at a rainbow, that's like something, well, like, uh, yes, there are philosophers, unfortunately, that say that's hallucination, but normal though. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's um, purely a light phenomenon. And I think if we, um, we can explain a lot of cases um, that we think of illusions by invoking that kind of object. So I'm happy to expand upon that or, you know, you ask, ask me um, a question about it. I never used to think it. It's something that I've been thinking about more and more. I, I used to hold a view that we basically imagined all these um, illusions and hallucinations and, you know, they're products of the imagination in some sense. Um, I'm not sure I think that so much now. But, um, so, you know, I should probably burn my thesis, but um, I've, I've come to... Um, think slightly differently so for example like um like the example of the um bent stick in um water we, we might say something like this right so if we go back to thinking of um things like shadows and holograms in the case of the rainbow again and we think that those are purely visible objects of course they are because you can't reach out and touch them right your hand just goes through them like like they did here Zoom background. Um, and in the case of the rainbow, we know, you know, this happens. The light, the light rays enter the um, the raindrops. They're reflected by the um, like curved surface. They refracted again, and then we see the colours, right? Um, so the raindrops are the prisms, and they break the sunlight, and we see the colours. Um, so if we think of like, so think of how that might apply to like the case of you know the parts of red, um straight stick you might say something like this you might say like well what if the part on the water the bit that looks bent is this purely mm. visible object that's kind of instantiated by the kind of um, refractive properties of the water in the way that the rainbow is instantiated by the kind of refractive properties of the raindrops right you're perceiving more than one object yeah, you're perceiving more than one type of object. And this whole talk of material objects obliterates that fact, right? In other words, yeah. it, it smooths over in a way that actually confuses. Right? I mean, I, I appreciate that. Absolutely. A bit of, it might be an intuitively weird thing to think you're acquainted with, but I don't see how it's any intuitively any more weird than saying that these um, mental items. You know, Absolutely. Absolutely. your awareness to the world. Oh man, that's, that's great. That's just great. Um, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And it, and it fits right in with Austin's idea that we do a lot of harm by this material object concept because by, um, by obscuring the distinctions between the objects that fall under material object, 
we actually create the philosophical problems, right? Because if you think about it, these philosophical problems wouldn't really arise if you disambiguated all these different types of... If you thought about more about the kinds of things that you can see. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't get what the issue um, is supposed to be at all. All we have to say is in the case of the straight stick or, um, or the part that's underwater, we just happen to be directly acquainted with a purely light phenomenon. And that is a real worldly class of material object. Right. Um, and I do think we might say something similar about the case of the Molalaya lines, for example. What we might say, and I don't take this to be any more weird than claims of sense data or representational um, objects. We might say that the, um, say the end hashes, the configuration of the lines with the uh, inverted and um, extroverted end hashes, why is it you are looking at them? They instantiate a purely visible object has of two unequal lines. Well, okay, that looks a bit weird. You can't reach out and touch it. It's very confusing. But it's no more weird than wheeling in things out that screen off, you know, the then entire world and you're going down a skeptical rabbit hole, possibly Absolutely. eventually. So if we can block um, the argument by giving a naive realist treatment of these cases, just by getting to grips of the kinds of things we see, you've already stopped the argument from you know, having the power that it doesn't just cause so much metaphysical mayhem throughout all of philosophy, right? It needs to go. Yeah. So we just, and like Austin says, um, philosophers, they're too focused on the object of perception. Well, what is it? There is no one object. Exactly. And the, and the category of material object is obscuring rather than clarifying. It's not useful mm. by lumping all these things together. It, now this creates a problem where it wouldn't disambiguated. <laughs> well, of course, it's not the same kind of perceptual, perceptual object as your ceiling, but they're both material, right? In, the, in a boring sense, right? I mean, I mean, they're I, mean both, I, I think they must be because it explains why we can all photograph them. That's right. Predictable and you know intersubjective. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, two things I want to ask because we're getting near the hour, and I don't want to abuse your time. Um, um, first, just is Austin the prime? Is Sense and Sensibility the primary um, sort of research material behind your work? Because it has what you're saying has a lot of real resonance with it, or is it is it just a fortuitous accident? <laughs> Um, yes and no. I mean, the thing that really struck me, um, there's a part in um, the early chapters, and he starts talking about how familiar cases are and makes a great deal of the fact that, well, what's so surprising? Um, someone who looks in a mirror and doesn't see kind of um, the, the reverse is, is um, you're going to think that something's gone wrong. If you look at them on the liar lines and they don't look unequal, you're going to be checking your eyes, right? So we would be badly put out if things didn't look as they were. But he doesn't actually explain mm. why mm. Um, we are so familiar. Yeah. Um, and we do, the, the, the fact is we do need to explain the appearance because we all do take ourselves to um, just a presentational aspect 
you know, that needs explaining. We can't just say we're familiar with it um, and therefore it's not illusory. We need to explain the nature of what it is we're seeing. Otherwise, you know, the representationalist is, go is going to get the upper hand. They can come and say, well, we, you know, you're directly aware of an idea, a sense datum, some, some other weird metaphysical object they like to invoke, right? So we, um, and then I, I remember reading um, Mike Martin's, I, I can't even remember what one it was, but there was one paragraph um, where he spoke about, you know, these purely visible objects. And I thought, of course, that's what we're seeing, you know. So, um, and then I just kind of put my own. Yeah, yeah. The other question I have, please feel free to not answer it because it's not something I asked you, prep, prepped you to, I was going to ask you, but it occurred to me as we were talking so back to the case of a hallucination where there is no external cause, right? This is, this is your brain generating an image. Does your way of, does your view or your work or however you want to put it, have a way of dealing with the sort of Wittgensteinian problems with mental pictures, the kind of private language sorts of problems that I would have with the idea of mental pictures um, but please, again, if this is like a an out of the blue question, feel free not to answer it. I'm, I haven't got a fully, you know, philosophers never have a fully worked out view, but mine is especially unworked out. But I think is a very kind of very tentative way to end it. If we want to give a naive realist treatment of um, hallucinations, which are by their nature unpredictable, your hallucination is not going to be my hallucination. You might hallucinate, you know, a giant spider crawling out your wall and I might hallucinate something else. It's, it's subjective to you. Um, but that said, what is hallucinated when you look at the face reports, they tend, it always tends to be um, of things we have once been directly acquainted with in the world. So maybe there's an argument to be made, well, um, we are still directly acquainted mm. with um, these objects through our memory. They're memories of public of experiences yeah, of public, of public yeah, objects. I, yeah, I think we might say something. I mean, this is if we want to try and maintain our connection to the world. Yeah, yeah. You, you might just bite the bullet and say, well, you're having any, if, if, you can still be a naive realist and say, well, uh, hallucination is, you know, a false belief or an imagining or so forth. But um, I think. For um, kind of explanatory unity and elegance, you probably want to, if you can, give um, hallucination and illusion both naive realist treatment rather than giving illusions the naive realist treatment and then saying, well, hallucinations are non-naive realist, right? Because you're just, just looks like you're, you're positing different theories for different phenomena. To, um, if you can, if you can give a broadly naive realist treatment of hallucinations, I think that's one way you might do it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really like that. And it, you know, uh, for people who have been following me, um, they'll know that my parents are very old and very infirm. My father has congestive heart failure. And so he's constantly getting lung infections. And I didn't know until the first time this happened, then when 90 year old, th three year old people get infections, they hallucinate. And um, but all of his hallucinations, you're right, are memories. They're basically just jumbled memories, right? He's asking me where his father is. He's talking to his father as if I'm his father, right? He's remembering people who he's already met 
taking him to places he's already been, but it's all yeah. jumbled together, right? I love this idea of you avoid the idea of a, a mental object in a sense by saying it's a memory of an experience of a public object. That you right? are putting together through something aberrant going on. In, in the brain obviously. have you worked that out at all or is that just something that this no is that story? that that's kind of my very unworked if i was going to try and write philosophy again and hopefully one day i will that that might be something i would um like well, louise if you can figure out a way to solve the private language <laughs> argument as it applies to mental pictures i think <laughs> you'll solve uh... the problem of perception there's nothing ambiguous <laughs> <laughs> well louise we've gone an hour um, about about an hour, and um, I, I'm very satisfied with at least this preliminary conversation. I hope we maybe can have more um, uh, on philosophy and not the other stuff. I am so glad to be talking about this, and not all the Everyone other. Everyone knows I'm what I mean by the other stuff. To, I'm not even going to jinx it by speaking. Right. <laughs> um, I hope we'll do this again. Um, I really enjoy this, and. Um, uh, I am going to ask you to provide me with any links to things that you think are relevant to this conversation we've had that yeah. can go up with it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you in the next okay. conversation. Thank you. Thank All you. Right. Take care. Ciao. Ciao.